Hello, I'm Dr. Yolanda Maghetto, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you to today's educational activity entitled Leveling the Playing Field, Overcoming Barriers to Equitable Care in ILD. Our program today is supported by an educational grant by Barnard Ingelheim. The CME activity is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a jointly accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. To introduce myself again, I'm Dr. Yolanda Maghetto. I currently serve as section lead of the Interstitial Lung Disease Program at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. And I would like to um, also welcome and have them introduce themselves, my two panel colleagues, um, Drs. Adesayan Goye and Dr. Martinez. Dr. Adesayan Goye? Hi, I'm Maya Dejadegunsoy. I'm a pulmonologist and an assistant professor at the University of Chicago, where I also serve as the scientific director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Program. My clinical and research interests are centered around pulmonary fibrosis, health equity, and the interrelationship between race, predictive and prognostic factors, and how these can help to improve outcomes amongst patients with interstitial lung disease. It's a pleasure to be here with you all tonight. Thank you. Dr. Martinez. Yeah, hi, I'm Fernando Martinez. Uh, I am the chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at uh, Weill Cornell Medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. Uh, I have been in the ILD space for more than 30 years, um, and it is a distinct pleasure to join my two colleagues in today's endeavor. Thank you both. So let's start with our learning objectives. We have three objectives today that after participating in this activity, you should be able to better, one, implement timely screening strategies that support an accurate diagnosis, focused patient education, and appropriate referrals for patients with interstitial lung disease. Two, develop multidisciplinary treatment pathways for the care of patients with ILD that include lifestyle modifications, pharmacotherapies, referrals, and management of comorbidities. And finally, incorporate shared decision-making with patients that factor in recognition of social determinants of health and equitable care opportunities. In a moment, we'll introduce our patient study. But first, I'd like to set the stage with a quick overview of interstitial lung disease. And quick, I really do mean quick because we could spend an hour on this slide alone. So interstitial lung disease is a group of disorders about 200 or more currently ranging from rare disorders to relatively common disorders. Most commonly, disorders occur in the interstitial space, and they range pathologically from being inflammatory predominantly or predominantly fibrotic, and the range goes all in between that. Because of the damage or inflammation or scarring that occurs in this region, typically um, patients will develop uh, decreasing exercise tolerance and dyspnea because of worsening gas exchange. And the symptoms that occur will be dependent typically on the degree of damage um, that is present. Outcomes are dependent on the actual diagnosis, um, and they can either stabilize and completely reverse back to normal. They can um, progress to respiratory failure and death, or sometimes they can just stabilize, never really get better or any worse. It depends on the underlying diagnosis, the time uh, at which they're diagnosed, and the therapies that are introduced and, and the time of those therapies. Now, we have new treatments. That's the good news. Um, but despite these new treatments and options that we have available to our patients, we still find that there are barriers to equitable care. And we typically see these barriers 
um, in areas such as race and ethnicity, which impacts ILD risk and mortality. We see it in the disparities in ILD screening and treatment um, that continue to persist. Um, we know that a multidisciplinary approach will improve quality of care, but is typically underutilized. And we know that shared decision-making and assessment of social determinants of health improves patient engagement, adherence to therapies, but they're not regularly implemented. And we also know that implicit bias negatively impacts um, interstitial lung disease care. So why should we care about diagnosing interstitial lung disease? And I'm going to turn to um, my colleague, Dr. Martinez, to talk about this. Yes, thank you, um, uh, Yolanda. I appreciate it. So th this is a really important topic, and it's a challenging topic. Uh, and my sense uh, is that many of the uh, participants today are more in the primary care arena. So uh, as, as we go through this discussion, uh, I'd like you to take away some of these really important concepts regarding not only the underlying diagnosis, but some of the key issues that Yolanda mentioned in terms of uh, concepts that we wanted you uh, to, to carry forth as we, as we go on. The ultimate goal is for you to aid us uh, as we try to develop uh, timely strategies to screen patients, ensure that we have an accurate diagnosis, that the patient is appropriately educated, uh, and again, when appropriate, that there are referrals uh, for these patients with interstitial lung disease so that they have uh, the ideal uh, uh, management course. Uh, and just to remind you, you will have an opportunity as we go through this presentation to participate. You are going to see some uh, audience response systems, some ARS questions. A pop-up will show up and you'll be asked to click on a response. We'll get about a 10-second interval, and then we're going to see exactly what you guys are thinking. Uh, and we're going to sort of proceed at that point to try to see whether we agree with that, whether we would do something different, uh, and hopefully uh, allow you to develop these kinds of strategies. As a result, we all thought that it was probably best to present this style with uh, a typical case. And so this will be Sheila. You will see Sheila presented in two different formats uh, as the presentation goes on to highlight some of the crucial points that we are trying to make during the course of this presentation. So for this version of Sheila, she's 53-year-old black woman who presents to you with breathlessness. Uh, she smoked a small amount, quit nine years ago. Good for her. She has uh, a series of medical uh, uh, comorbid conditions. She's hypertensive on therapy. She's had a history of type 2 diabetes. She's had reflux disease and has known her a little bit of dysphagia, a little difficulty with some of the swallowing. She has a remote surgical history of an appendectomy and a cholecystectomy. Her mother died at 75 from a myocardial infarction and her dad at 77 from a lung disease. And she doesn't remember exactly what the nature was, uh, but it was an unpleasant death. Uh, and she lives in, uh, this is typical Yolanda vision for these cases, adding some of the complexity in that she lives in an old house that has an unfinished basement, and she actually spends time down there doing uh, laundry and uh, some crafting components. So this is sort of the typical kind of uh, of history that you see in these patients to, to make uh, the, the case even more challenging. So there she is. She tells you the story. She's in front of you in your office slash clinic, uh, and you do your physical exam because uh, you're going to charge her for this visit. So you do a complete history and physical exam, uh, and what you get in the physical exam is the following. So her vital signs look good. Head and neck doesn't show anything. You listen to her lungs and you hear some crackling, some rowls, and you know already mm, something is up. 
Uh, heart exam is unremarkable. The abdomen is unremarkable. No masses, tenderness, no, no organomegaly. Uh, you do your thorough exam and you look at her hands. She doesn't have clubbing, cyanosis, or edema, but you look at the hands and you go, geez, these look, uh, these look a little bit abnormal. Uh, the, 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 the skin just looks uh, a little thickened and she says, yeah, yeah, she, she's noticed that, uh, to some extent, uh, developing gradually. So now you've got a scenario in this uh, 50-year-old individual that has a history of respiratory symptoms uh, and has a series of comorbid conditions uh, and has some physical finding abnormalities. All right, so remember I told you that you would be seeing some of these questions, so you will have your first of these questions. Given what you now know about this young lady, Sheila, what do you want to do next? Do you want to follow a cardiologist route? Do you want to do a CT scan of the chest? Do you think a chest X-ray is more appropriate at this point? Do you think you should go pulmonary functions? Or are you going to go, I don't know, uh, I got to think about it. So you have five options, so go for it. All right, very interesting. Um, all right, so it sounds like the majority of individuals, and I think I forgot how many slot we, uh, responses we had, but it was more than 70 and 80 when I, when I saw this. Uh, it looks like most of the group feels like they want to do a chest radiograph, uh, an even split when it goes CT scan versus a lung function test. And we have a group of our colleagues that love the cardiologists, and so they want to go the, the heart uh, route. All right, so this is uh, a very interesting approach. Uh, and so now as you think about it, I want you to conceptualize that you're the primary care clinician who's seeing this patient. Uh, you've done this history and physical. Uh, we actually didn't give you the option of any simpler things that you may want to do up front. So some of you may have thought, well, you know, this, there's something going on here that seems that it's not just in the lung. Because remember, she has some difficulty swallowing and you notice that her fingers look abnormal. So some of you would have thought, well, you know, let me just at least start thinking about the, the global approach to this young lady uh, and obtain serological studies. You've got an abnormal ANA at this age. Uh, some of them have even considered the potential of lung function measurements, and she has a force vital capacity of 67% of predicted, which is a bit down. So you know the lung volumes seem to be a bit on the shrinking side. She has a diffusing capacity of carbon monoxide for 45% of DLCO low. When she walks for six minutes, she walks a great distance, 1,300 feet, but her oxygen saturation drops uh, a bit. Uh, and so I want you to keep the sequence of some of these in mind as I uh, will refer to my colleagues in a couple of slides, because I think that part of what I want you to, to get a sense of in this setting is what is the optimal approach for me to take to this individual uh, as I'm contemplating what Yolanda Maghetto said at the beginning, which is I got a strong sense that this is an ILD. You're in an ILD-focused program, so hint. Uh, and so I think that the, the, the question now becomes what additional studies we would do. Uh, and for, for many of us, uh, most of us, if not all of us that are in the ILD field, the, the key diagnostic test is this one, which is a very specific imaging modality of the chest, a high resolution computed tomography of the chest or HRCT. Uh, and this is a typical series of findings that you would anticipate in a patient with this clinical scenario. So you get a series of images that include the axial images, the coronal images, and the sagittal images. That's what we're presenting here. 
And what you see is something that uh, Yolanda mentioned earlier, the lung parenchyma. This is normal. This is abnormal. So you see that there is an abnormality in the lung parenchyma. Uh, and the abnormality is worse at the bottom. It's worse at the bottom of the lung than the upper lung zone. So it is what we call basal or predominant. It is at the edge of the lung. So if this is the pleura, it is subpleural. So you have basal or predominant subpleural abnormalities, which includes some haziness, ground glass, some increased markings or reticulation. And some of these airways you can see all the way to the very end, which you should not see in normal lungs. So you know that these airways are abnormal. And this is what we call traction. The airway has been pulled aside, traction bronchiectasis. So when you see this kind of a picture, this is a very, very instructive piece of information for those of us that manage patients with this kind of a scenario, which is why this particular imaging modality is so important. That you know what? There's more information that comes out of this kind of, of an imaging modality. And so, for example, in this individual, not only are you looking at the lung tissue, the lung parenchyma, which remember shows this basal or predominant subpleural abnormality with a this, this uh, haziness of ground glass with these dilated airways. But ooh, look at that. There's also an esophageal dilation in this person. So there's something that is abnormal imaging that is outside the lungs within the chest. So now you're starting to get a sense of, hmm, there's a little bit more in this patient. And so now as I turn to my colleagues, who are experts in this field, in the ideal setting, the ideal evaluation of a patient like this, what are the features that to both of you suggest, yes, in this breathless dyspneic patient, ILD, interstitial lung disease, is likely to be uh, a key problem. So Yolanda, I'll turn over to you first. What are the things that tip it off to you that you'd want our primary care colleagues to have emboldened in their head of how to think about this? So, you know, I think there's some questions here, but the, one of the things that makes ILD somewhat difficult is that the presentation mimics a lot of other disorders. But key features for me is somebody who comes in with a very gradual onset of dyspnea, rather insidious, and you sometimes have to be very aggressive in your history taking, if you will, and push on people to find out when this dyspnea really started, because nine times out of ten, it's longer than what they actually tell you. Um, my second feature that a lot of people will present with is fatigue and cough. Dry, hack and cough often gets misdiagnosed as COPD and um, or asthma, depending on the age and the history. Somebody like this lady may have been told, oh, you have COPD, take an inhaler, go home, see me in a year. Fortunately, we also know listening to her on clinical exam, she does not have a normal exam. She had crackles on exam. She had uh, abnormalities on her hands. Uh, she had evidence of scleroderma. So that should have clued me in that there is a systemic process here. And I'm thinking interstitial lung disease because I've got a patient who's short of breath, who has restrictive physiology on their PFTs, and um, who has an additional possible systemic diagnosis that's associated with ILD. So these are sort of the things that go through my mind um, when I think about interstitial lung disease and sort of trying to peel it apart from the other uh, potential diagnoses that could be um, asked about here. All right. So, so Deja, I'm going to come to you in a second with a separate question, but I want to finish this thought with Dr. Maghetto here. 
what she's got rowels and she's breathless. Why not heart? Why do, do we not think this is potentially heart failure in this hypertensive individual? Perfect question, because most of these patients get referred to cardiologists. It's interesting to me that in our questionnaire, we did not have a lot of people go for cardiology. Yes, of course, it's, a, it's a pulmonary <laughs> presentation. So, you know, but still, I, I, I thank you guys. I really love it. Um, but, you know, the and I, I, I think this comes a little bit to experience. Uh, cardiac crackles are typically wet. Um, they have a different sound to this very dry Velcro rowels that you hear. And also the distribution of those rowels are a little bit different than what you might hear in heart disease. Plus, you didn't have any other. I mean, she should have had lower extremity edema, uh, you know, S3, the other findings on exam, which she did not have. So in the totality, I would lean far away. And you all got an X-ray that told you otherwise. Um, that this is not going to be cardiac. Also, she's 53. I'm less likely to think cardiac in a 53-year-old female um, without risk factors, significant risk factors. She has some um, compared to, uh, say, a 75-year-old gentleman who has low extremity edema, wet rowels who comes in floridly, um, in florid edema. All right. So for all of you that are there, that you've now seen the thinking process of an expert clinician who uses all the information that's available, including historical, and she actually listened to the heart. <laughs> so a key piece of information. So now, Deji, the majority of individuals that answered our question wanted a chest radiograph. So, bud, do you want to spend your money on a chest radiograph in this setting? <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Martinez, for that. I, I think it's very intriguing that you bring that up because a lot of clinicians might say, hey, we tend to practice culturally aware and socially responsive medicine. And so given her dyspnea on exertion, her strong cardiac history, the risk factors, both personal and family, and the presence of rouse and auscultation, so some doctors might say, you know what, common things occur commonly. And, and so I'm going to get a low-cost chest X-ray or get an echocardiogram right in the ED to assess for heart failure with the premise that, yes, Common things occur commonly, and, and this is likely heart failure, especially if this was in the setting of a safety net community hospital. And so that might not be an entirely wrong answer if for those who selected that. It just has to be contextualized in, in the patient in question and the environment in which she's been assessed. But, but I completely agree with Dr. Magido. And as you mentioned earlier on, um, she had the key diagnostic test. She had an HRCT. She's also got symptoms, and, and she's got long function impairment. I mean, it's hard to top that trifecta right there. So the setting of a positive ANA, that's an anti-nuclear antibody, which is one of the hallmarks of autoimmunity in the background. She's got skin thickening. She's got parenchymal fibrosis or scar tissue in the lungs, but not in a typical, usual interstitial pneumonia pattern. One might say, well, this is very likely connective tissue disease-related form of ILD, and she's got a markedly abnormal esophageal dysfunction as well. And so I might lean towards systemic sclerosis in her. All right. So that's very, that's interesting. And it's, again, important because I want you, again, for those of us that, that, are, that are in the audience here, to understand sort of the thinking process. One of the things you'll know, because we'll ask you some additional uh, audience response questions, uh, and some of those audience response questions will highlight a, a, a correct answer. You'll notice that in our question, we didn't highlight a correct answer because there are a whole series of features that influence this. Uh, and so Deji's brought one that will come up again. And that is, depending on what resources you have or what access the individual patient have, you may choose to do something a little bit different uh, up front. But you've identified both of these individuals, both of our expert clinicians have highlighted that the history and physical exam in this setting 
have been crucial. So now one, one last question that I want to pose to both of you before we proceed on uh, is if I'm a primary care clinician, when am I going to refer this patient? How do I refer? Yolanda, I'll turn it over to you since you're picking up uh, the next section uh, of the discussion. You know, if if the minute you start seeing this, you really should think about sending it to your pulmonologist um, is who the person should see. Now, in a little bit, we're going to talk about who specifically in the pulmonary world should see this person um, and why that is the case. Um, they should be seen in an ILD center, but at the very minimum, they should be referred to a pulmonologist and, there's an and here, especially since we're thinking autoimmunity, a rheumatologist, preferably one that has some experience with, with uh, interstitial lung disease. Um, some rheumatologists have more experience uh, with this than others, but definitely both should see this patient. Um, now, I don't know if you want me to go on because we're going to yeah, be going so, on. So, so now you're going to take there. Yeah, you're going to take okay. this into, in fact, this, this team so, approach. So I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, let's 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 then move on. And thanks a lot for that discussion. Fernando is great. Um, so we're going to move then to the second and um, team, a uh, team approach to equitable treatment and care. And then to learning objective number two here, we're going to talk about developing multidisciplinary treatment pathways for the care of patients with ILD. That will include these lifestyle modifications, pharmacotherapies, referrals, and management of comorbidities. And it was a question about whether this patient would be somebody you would give a PPI to. Scleroderma patients typically do have a lot of trouble with esophageal disorders and GERD. And certainly, yes, PPI is certainly reasonable, but it's not a stopping point. It's one piece of the composite picture. So first, let's go to the next question for you. Which of the following antifibrotic therapies is FDA approved for appropriate uh, patients with systemic sclerosis-associated ILD? Phenofibrate, intetinib, perfenidone, semaglutide, or, again, I just don't know. Great job. Okay, nitetinib it is. A third of you uh, voted for nitetinib. And then we are divided up with 28%. I'm not sure. I love it. That means we're doing a good job. So we'll have this discussion. Profenadone, 13%, 20% for phenofibrate, and 6% for semaglutide. Um, Nintetinib is the correct answer, and we'll talk about uh, why that is in a minute. So we, we left our last section talking a little bit about um, who this patient would see when they moved, you know, once you had the uh, – diagnosis of interstitial lung disease, and now what do you do with this patient? It really takes a village to manage these patients, um, and that that's really literally. Um, we typically have pulmonologists involved, radiologists involved, when indicated pathologists, when appropriate rheumatologists with expertise um, in interstitial lung disease, and you, the primary care providers, are at the center of this. Because you know, or you should know, or we should be feeding back to you everything that's coming and going so that you know what's going on with your patient at all times as well. These patients are typically quite complicated and have a lot of secondary comorbidities that need to be dealt with as well. So it's really important to have all the players at the table with everybody discussing it so that the patient's best interests are at heart and that we're doing everything in a timely fashion. So you might ask me then, 
what's a good ILD center? How do I find one? And right here on the screen is a QR code, um, refers you back to the list of um, credited interstitial lung disease centers in the country by state. Those get added to, um, and these are centers where patients can get further testing. Um, they will be assessed for appropriate therapies and access to clinical trials. Now, sometimes people think, okay, well, they go to the center, that's it, we're done. What about our local pulmonologists? What about our local docs? Because not all ILD centers are close to patients. Sometimes they have to travel. The beauty of it is ILD centers can't manage every single patient anyway. So what we very often do is that we collaborate with our local pulmonologists, our local rheumatologists, and we give them feedback. This is what we think. We got together with our multidisciplinary group, and we talked about your patient. We reviewed all their information. These are our recommendations, and we go back and forth, and that way it's a win-win. The patient gets that information. They get that support. They get that access, but at the same time, um, you know, the local pulmonologists and the local community folks are also learning about managing this disease process as well. I also think it's important because patients get uh, access to clinical trials that they might not get in their home centers, and that gets them, you know, first in line to upcoming new therapies. And so that's really also an important reason for a referral. You know, one of the things we think about, I talked about when my little nutshell slide of ILD is the idea of inflammatory processes all the way to fibrotic processes. And you'll find that most of the patients we see in this group, um, at least the ones that are, are really ill and latent stage, are the fibrotic patients. These are patients is what we call chronic fibrosing interstitial lung diseases. And just to give you an idea, um, you know, just to, this is a slide that gives you an idea of the proportion of patients that have this particular uh, phenotype. It's called a progressive uh, fibrotic phenotype. I'll tell you what it means in a minute. But just at a quick glance, you'll notice scleroderma, a third of patients. Um, rheumatoid arthritis, 26%. Um, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, otherwise HP, 21%. And yes, even sarcoidosis uh, patients, uh, percentage of them will develop a fibrotic process. So just keep that in mind that this is why it's sort of imperative to get an early diagnosis and get these patients into centers early on so that we can uh, assess, monitor, intervene where we can. And in some of these patients who need lung transplant, get them there early enough. It breaks my heart when I see a young patient referred for transplant that should have been referred two years before they actually show up at the center and there's nothing we have left to offer. So um, progressive pulmonary fibrosis is a term that, was recently developed in, in trying to differentiate all these different ILDs and what we actually see. This is a subset of patients that do not have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but they do have fibrosis that is progressive. And to have progressive uh, pulmonary fibrosis, you'll have either two of uh, three criteria that have occurred in the last 12 months with no alternative explanation. So they'll have worsening respiratory symptoms or they have physiologic evidence of disease progression. So you'll get their PFTs and they will drop, the FEC will drop by greater than or equal to 5%, or the diffusion capacity will drop by greater or equal to 10% within that year. Or three, they'll have radiologic evidence of disease progression. So you'll get your HRCT scan. It will show either there's new traction bronchiectasis, there's new honeycombing, um, there's new fine reticulation, as Dr. Martinez was showing you uh, on the HRCTs that he recent, that he showed with of Sheila's in here a minute ago. 
So any of these findings, two out of these three need to be present, and you know you have progressive pulmonary fibrosis. Why is this important? Because it's really imperative that these patients are now in front of ILD experts um, with the right team um, because they have a certain amount of time before this gets to end stage. So when we think about Sheila, I'm going to go back to our case. She has scleroderma. Scleroderma showed you in that uh, chronic fibrosing um, ILDs. Uh, over a third of these patients will develop fibrotic lung disease. We see that in the CT scan like we did with Sheila. How do we manage these patients? Well, first of all, education is key. Um, my colleague will talk a little bit about this later. Um, appropriate immunizations are key. Um, following their PFTs are key. We don't get routine CT scans all the time. Um, those are more as needed once we have the diagnosis or if they have something that makes you suspect they have progression of their disease process. But these patients should be monitored at least every six months. They're not the patients you see and say, see me in a year. Somebody needs to lay eyes on them on a consistent basis. And so once we get to this point, we think about, well, what are we going to do for them? How are we going to treat them? Typically, it's immunomodulatory therapy and or antifibrotic therapy. And this is where the nitetinib question uh, comes in. I'm going to go to our next slide because this is going to take us into that. When we think about immunomodulatory therapy in these patients, telestizumab and mycophenolate have both been approved for this indication for cell set for patients with uh, scleroderma. This is patients with early disease. Uh, we use it in patients with lung disease and in patients with multi-organ and skin involvement. Antifibrotic therapies used predominantly in patients who have lung disease with evidence of fibrosis. Um, and that is used with, you know, in conjunction with immunomodulatory therapy. It's usually not an either-or um, issue. It's usually both. Um, because most of these patients who have interstitial involvement have other systemic involvement as well. Um, escalation, if this doesn't work, drugs such as rituximab, um, cytoxan are considered. And finally, lung transplant and clinical trials. The key to the lung transplant is that you have to refer them within a certain window. There is a window in which it is too late and they are too far gone for lung transplant. So always better, if you're ever wondering, to refer somebody early rather than late. And the transplant center can always tell you uh, whether it's too early and keep an eye on them and when to send them back. But once it's too late, there's no back door there. Well, let's talk about Sheila again. Let's just, let's, let's come back to our case. So it should be noted that Sheila, <clears throat> our Sheila, the one that was just presented to you, lives in Chicago along the Magnificent Mile. Those of you who are from Chicago or from that area or know anything about it know that this is uh, a fairly wealthy part of the city uh, with a very high income. She's a practicing attorney. Uh, she has um, access to pretty much any health care that she wants. But let's ask ourselves a different question. Let's, let's step back a minute because let's talk about the other side of the coin, part of our topic today. What if Sheila were a different Sheila? What if she were from Southside Chicago, where the median income is just under $40,000 a year. She has a full-time job, but she doesn't have insurance because her job doesn't provide insurance. Or she has insurance, but she has this ridiculously high deductible and so has to pretty much pay for everything until she's about $20,000 out of pocket. Um, would that be different? Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. We're going to call it the tale of two Sheilas. And um, I'm going to... Um, pull in my colleagues here and ask them, you know, 
I'll start with Dr. Atticusoy. So tell me, um, between these two Sheilas, what do you think? Do you think things might be different for, say, the time to diagnosis and management for our South Source Sheila versus our Magnificent Mile Sheila? I really do think so. I think there is an intricate interplay of factors that bring to bear upon this question that you just raised. Um, one of the key aspects of this is the access to health care that the two Sheilas face in that same city of Chicago, right? The one who lives on the Magnificent Mile, for example, might have a higher income and proximity to major hospitals and specialty clinics that are near her residence. And so we might presume that she's probably got better access to top-tier healthcare services, which the other Sheila may not have on the south side of Chicago, right? Because there are fewer nearby healthcare facilities, or she may experience economic barriers to accessing the few healthcare facilities near her. We can also think about economic status. For example, the Sheila who lives on the Magnificent Mile, uh, which is an area, by the way, that's known for luxury shopping, for upscale restaurants, for high-end residencies. Patients there are more likely to have a higher socioeconomic status, right? When you compare that with the other Sheila who lives in an area where, on average, they may have a lower economic status, then their access to care begins to influence healthcare, in this case, influence the decisions that are being made at the healthcare level, which could perpetuate that delay in appropriate diagnosis of a condition. So, so there are different aspects that, that I think affect that. And I do feel like, yes, indeed, in practical terms, that could delay the diagnosis further. Fernando, do you think that if, if we do delay her diagnosis, that there would be any issue with outcomes? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. Let, let me let me ask both of you a, a question before that one, because I want to see what you think about what our colleagues answered when we asked this question. So, so Yolanda, you mentioned this issue of the copay. That's that's such a relevant thing. If I'm if I'm speaking to Sheila and I say to her, we don't need to get a CT scan, which is going to be several thousand dollars out of your pocket versus a chest X-ray, which is going to be several hundred dollars out of your pocket. Do you think that would influence potentially which of these ideal diagnostic studies gets done up front? Deji, what do you think? I, I do think, yes, it, it might influence that. Patients often have to make a conscious decision about their costs, in this case, healthcare costs. Yeah. And sometimes it's a decision that influences um, other basic necessities of life. Do I pay my copay or do I have three square meals a day? Do I pay my copay or pay for my kids' bus pass to school, yeah. right? These are real decisions that they grapple with, and they're not easy decisions in the context of the patient, and that might affect the decision to get a diagnostic test, a mixed diagnosis that, you know, leads on to treatment appropriately being delivered for the patient. Correct. I mean, that's my sense. Yolanda, there actually are data that address the key question that you asked, and that is, and some of it comes from the, from the transplant point of view. Is there a relationship between delay in diagnosis and transplantation? And the answer is yes. You're absolutely correct that if there's a delay, you are more likely to be seen when you have more advanced disease and there's less potential impact of some of our uh, pharmacological and non-pharmacological therapies. And there likely is a component that access to care drives that. So in, in the setting of more limited access to care, expensive access to care, as Deja just said, there is a greater likelihood of delay, and that has been associated with a, a greater severity of disease on presentation. Deja, you published some of this, uh, and, and I think it has a very dramatic impact, absolutely. Do we think – so So this is something that came up in a different discussion that I sort of want to bring up as well. Do we think that both Sheila's 
even though they have different access, will they have different, um, uh, you know, that even though they have uh, access to care, are they treated the same way? There is a key question. Uh, do we think they're treated the same way? Um, my, my own sense would be that there is the, there's a clear potential that the approach to diagnostic processes and therapies would potentially be different, uh, and they could have negative implications on outcome. Deji, what do you think? I, I agree with you. I, I do think that it's actually a complex question that can be answered within the context of the healthcare delivery system. The individual delivering the care, the facility where that care is delivered, not just the geographical location, but the social context of the healthcare providers in that healthcare system. All of these have an important role to play in how Sheila at either location receives the healthcare that's been delivered to her. And so there are, like you said earlier on, implicit biases that, you know, impact the care delivered to Sheila at the different geographic locations. Uh, whether she's done a good job of taking care of her health. In the mm -hmm. first place, is how some people think mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. Again, remember the one on the Magnificent Mile might be living in a place where people are more health conscious, where they're able to access city-based fitness and wellness amenities, whereas the one on the south side, you know, probably has limited pop safe public spaces, and that could impact their outdoor physical activity. And so it might be construed that, well, this is a product of you're not exercising, and that's why you are here. And so I think it depends on a lot of factors, uh, but yes, they often will be cared for differently based on their geographical, geographical locations. And it's not just access, right? It's not just that you have access to a CT scan or something of that sort, but, but it's potentially how the healthcare practitioner views the patient and makes decisions. Yes. Is that what I'm interpreting from both of you? Yes, that, yes, that, that, that's, that, that's important because that yeah. also matters what that conversation is in that room. Yeah. So having said that, I really appreciate this conversation because it leads us right into yeah. um, the actual um, Next uh, slide, which is individualizing patient care and assessing those social determinants of health and into our um, a, a third uh, objective. And I'm going to turn this over to you, Dr. Egan-Soye, at this point in time. Thank you, Dr. Maguido. So at this point, we've heard from Dr. Martinez and Dr. Maguido excellent discussions about why we should care about diagnosing ILDs and how to go about a team-based approach to equitable treatment and care for, for our patients. In this section, we're going to be learning a lot more about focusing uh, uh, care on incorporating shared decision-making approaches uh, with patients uh, that we care for, and also factoring in the recognition of these important social determinants of health and equitable health care opportunities into the care delivered uh, during our clinical encounter. And so I'm going to start by asking our audience our final audience response question. And that is this. Patient-focused interviewing and care is an example of which of the following? A, cultural humility. B, health equity. C, implicit bias. D, social determinants of health. Or E, I don't know. That's fantastic. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I all right, there you go. I like it. It's on your plate here. It's all <laughs> yours now. Take it away. I realize that. And so I see here that we have an excellent opportunity to learn uh, about what, what to do in this context. And I see the majority of people felt health equity is the right answer. 
And the, the next best option was social determinants of health, and some people pick cultural humility. But it's a great learning opportunity for us. So let's let's dive right into it. So one way to think about cultural humility is by focusing our approach to everyday life on a tripod that we use every day, the tripod of thinking, of doing, of feeling. And so we can contextualize this in the five hours of cultural humility as we interact with our patients or, in fact, other people in the healthcare system. For example, what did I learn from each patient in that encounter? That's reflection. Did I treat everyone involved in that encounter respectfully? That is respect. Did unconscious biases drive that interaction with that individual? That is regard. How was cultural humility relevant in that interaction? That's relevance. And then how was my resilience affected by that interaction? That is resiliency. So in summary, cultural humility really involves considering our thoughts, considering our actions, thinking about our emotions, and, and, and is assessed through our ability to reflect, to show respect, to recognize these biases that we talked about earlier, to understand their importance and maintain resilience in our day-to-day interaction with patients. And this really begins to help us avoid the potential arrogance of presuming we know everything about another person's culture. And it also helps to overcome several challenges that have been linked to cultural competence. These are two very distinct entities, cultural humility on one side and cultural competence on the other side. A lot of the general knowledge about cultural competence was found to be based on generalized preconceived notions, which unfortunately can begin to perpetuate biases that lead to harmful medical practice in our day-to-day encounters. And so as professionals, as individuals, we want to approach interactions from the perspective of cultural humility rather than cultural competence. So we might choose to, rather than say, I know who you are already, one might say, I'm curious about who you are. Right. So embracing cultural humility over cultural competence begins to prevent presumptions about someone's culture, addressing the pitfalls of generalized biases. And it also encourages a genuine curiosity about an individual's identity instead of assuming knowledge about them, you know, before you even interact with them. So patients without the uh, real people living in the real world and like everybody else, they have to grapple with the daily challenges that impact us all. And so there's an intricate interplay of, you know, being viewed with the complex lens of race and ethnicity, which, again, is a social construct that often impacts the clinical decision making process, like we said moments ago. There's the aspect of financial resources that could influence cost related healthcare decisions. We did mention earlier the geographical location of residents, whether it's rural or urban, and the issue of health literacy, how much do they really understand? And this is not just the patients themselves, but their caregivers as well, who live with them in the same residence. And then fitting all of these different facets of their lives into their own social network. That circle of connectedness and you know, support structure that the patient leans on, relies on on a day-to-day basis. So being able to contextualize this care administered within this framework is really key to optimizing outcomes for patients with ILD. We should really remember that our patients with ILD navigate their daily lives affected by factors like race, ethnicity, economic status, residential status or type, understanding of health, and, and social connections really for enhancing their healthcare results. And so what I put here on the screen is a key approach that has been shown to be helpful in improving healthcare interaction across the sector. 
And this is the use of a shared decision-making approach where uh, optimal patient care has been observed by implementing this at the point of care. So this approach moves away from the age-old paternalistic approach to medicine, and it delicately balances the scientific evidence with social determinants of health while accounting for the patient's values and their perspectives. So it's, it's really an acronym, S-H-A-R-E. And, and so what does it mean? It means that at the point of care, we should S, seek the participation of the patient in that encounter. H, help the patient explore and compare treatment options that may be available to them. The A stands for assess their values and their preferences in the context of the care that's been delivered. And also think about the options that are available to them as well. The, the R stands for reaching a decision with the patient, with them. And then the E is evaluating their decision, preferably again with them, not in isolation as a standalone healthcare provider. Now, this has been shown to improve the healthcare interaction, improve patient satisfaction, and ultimately translate to improved outcomes for care. Unfortunately, uh, racial and ethnic disparities uh, and implicit bias persists in the healthcare system. And increasingly, there's the increasing recognition that these factors impact medicine in so many more ways than we thought before. Uh, the issue of racial inequities are known to be pervasive in the U.S. medical care system. It's really cut through the fabric of our healthcare system. It impacts different facets of care that have been provided. It doesn't matter what healthcare system you're in. It, it really impacts care at the point of delivery. The provider interactions like we talked about earlier on with, with patients of color are less patient-centered oftentimes. There have been fewer requests for patient and family input about treatment decisions that are integral to the outcome of that patient in question. And then there's a part of equitable medication uptake, right? The cost of care and, and, and utilization of these medication uptake amongst all racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic groups, right? And that goes even beyond medications to advance, you know, care options like lung transplantation, like you heard Dr. Martinez talk about earlier on. Now, all of these can be viewed from that lens of racial and ethnic disparities and ultimately translate oftentimes to poorer healthcare delivery to patients of color. And so we should think about that when we are giving care to these patients. There's a link at the bottom of your screen that when you click it, it says, you know, it, it helps you to test yourself for that preconceived notion of implicit bias, right? And, and it's really found at Project Implicit at HTTPS. Um, backslash, backslash, implicit.harvard.edu. And so by way of summary, this slide begins to reflect our mission, our goal, which really is health equity, right? The attainment of the highest level of health for all people, everybody. At this point, I'll pass it back to you, Dr. Magido. Thank you. Thanks, Deji. That was a great discussion. This is, this is clearly not a topic we're going to solve today. Um, but it is one that we hope um, by educating and moving forward that, you know, we can keep improving the healthcare arena across the board for all. And so with that thought, you know, I'd like to offer some SMART goals, which are specific action items that you can immediately start using in your practice. These are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So putting information into action setting that time frame that works with your work environment and, you know, a reasonable improvement target. So uh, some of the suggestions we would say is increasing the number of patients screened for ILD who present with relative symptoms, um, improving the rate of referral to ILD centers where available, 
Um, increase the number of patients with ILD who receive educational materials and or counseling during office visits. There are materials offered with this. Um, the PFF Foundation, the QR code for the ILD centers, they also offer free uh, materials that they will mail out to you to put in your office to give to your patients. Uh, so there, there is information out there um, that you can attain without spending any additional dollars. Um, and increasing the number of patients seeking care uh, for ILD for whom social determinants health are assessed and or addressed. Um, we we are at a crossroads in our healthcare system, and really we have the opportunity to make things better as a unit um, for all involved. So I'm with that. I'm going to move into the Q and A session. So we will go ahead and start. Um, I'm going to start with some of the more. Oh, these are great questions. Okay, yeah, guys, good we've question. got a lot. I'm going to actually start with some of the easier ILD ones uh, and then move to some of the more complicated ones. So this is actually interesting. Um, how often will ILD stabilize or resolve on its own? Um, I will turn that over to you, Deji. Do you want to take that one? Personally, I'd be happy to uh, take a stab at it. And then I'll pass it on to Dr. Martinez because he knows way more than me in that field. Um, so, yes, that's a really interesting question. How often does ILD stabilize or improve? Well, ILD, from the very definition, points to architectural distortion within the lung tissue. We call that the lung parenchyma. And a lot of times that is really scar tissue. That's why we call it pulmonary fibrosis. Oftentimes, the fibrosis tends to progress, tends to get worse. And in certain instances, it can have a slow rate of progression. In other instances, a very rapid progression to death or lung transplantation, sometimes unfortunately within a few weeks. But there is a subset of those that will not progress. And the scar tissue it remains there. We typically say scar tissue does not resolve, like scar tissue on the skin or anywhere else. It's scar. It hardly ever resolves. And so it's difficult to say within the context of a specific reality subset whether it's going to progress or not. But we do fortunately have the new term, which Dr. Magido referred to earlier, progressive pulmonary fibrosis. And that's the recognition that across the spectrum, a certain fraction of patients will have progressive scar tissue in the lungs that will impair continuously the lung function and lead to worse outcomes. And that varies across the different ILD subtypes, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, Jodrin's disease. There's a varying fraction of the different ILD subsets. So my, my recommendation will be for one to have very careful discussion with your local pulmonologist and with that ILD specifically in question, determine the rate of progression and what you can do to blunt the progression, to halt that rapid decline in lung function that ultimately leads to devastating outcomes. Great. I'm going to actually interrupt because we have a lot of questions and not not too long, so I'm going to uh, move this along. I want to actually, Fernando, there's a couple yeah. of transplant questions. Yeah. So one, um, I want to see if you can address uh, the approximate wait time for leading, needing a transplant, and then we have another one here about um, preferred transplant centers and reasons for referring a patient to a transplant center. Uh, I'm going to let you have that one. Sure, sure, Dr. Megiddo. So, uh, you know, the, the, the transplant world has evolved rapidly. Uh, I was actually involved in the original uh, allocation system for the uh, for transplantation, which has just recently been revised. Uh, all of those lung allocation revisions were done to minimize the wait time for someone who needed a transplant. 
Um, and so it's it's highly variable right now. My sense is that the overall time has clearly decreased as a result of these in, uh, changes in, in allocation system. But it always comes back to something that Dr. Maguito said at the very beginning, which is it is always best when you're considering transplantation to consider it early. A transplant program is always going to be happier seeing a patient and saying, yeah, you're not quite that bad yet. We'll follow you with your with your local doctors than the setting of, oh, my God, you're so advanced that there's nothing we can do. Uh, and so I think that as you think about these ILDs, Dr. Adegonsoya was very clear in pointing out that there is clearly a proportion of patients that progress. And we have therapies that can minimize that progression. So always considering these diagnoses early, referring them early, uh, is, is really the most important thing. And that is certainly the case from the point of view of lung transplantation. Thank you. Um, we also have the next, another question, which I find interesting is how, when and how I should broach the subject of clinical trials for my patients with ILD. So I've been living in the clinical trials world for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think of clinical trials as an option for therapy. So because we don't have an actual cure. So I always think of this in terms of these are your options. And I always start with the, I call it the do nothing option or the no treatment arm, which nobody likes, but people have a right to. And there are occasional patients who say, I just want to wait and see what, you know, and that's that shared decision making process and education piece. Um, and I have to respect that. Um, then there's the idea of saying, you know, we have these antifibrotic agents, or if you have an autoimmune disease, antifibrotic agents plus the immunosuppressive therapy that we would give in combo therapy. If it's sarcoid, it might be an antifibrotic with, uh, again, steroids, whatever the therapy, infliximab therapy of choice is. Um, and then I also say the third option is clinical trials, and that's how I would bring it up in the conversation and talk about what clinical trials are. People do balk a little bit at the idea of a placebo, but the flip side of that coin is most clinical trials now, when you complete the actual trial, allow you to roll over into actual getting the drug. Plus, patients are monitored a lot more closely in a clinical trial than they are in a regular clinic uh, environment. So that's some of the advantages I point out. And at the end of the day, Again, it's the idea of shared decision-making and me putting all of the options on the table and what works best for you in terms of what's most important to you for your life. That's how I like to think about that. Love um, so let's, <laughs> welcome. let's think about um, also um, there are a few questions about nintetinib and perfenidone in here. Would like would one of you, one of them deals yeah. with side effects and one talks about <laughs> picking one over the other. So let, let me tackle this last week. We only have a, a couple of minutes, but I want to follow up on something that Dr. Maghetto said, which I think is crucial. So, so Dr. Agonsoya, you've been doing this for a period of time. Uh, I've been doing this for 30 years, uh, this, this field. And, I, and my sense has been that the field is now much more complex with regards to how we address this shared decision making in a good way, Daisy, not a bad way. Yes. Because Yolanda, you'll remember it was like, well, there's not a lot we can do, and it's bad diseases. Now, as Dr. Magetto said, it is these are a breadth of options that we have. Uh, and so that last question regarding intetinib or profenadone is a perfect example of that. Those drugs work. They work uh, by decreasing progression over time. They work differently in different diseases. Their side effect profile is different. 
they're dosed in a different way. So even that aspect of the discussion, not just no treatment or clinical trials, but just that middle discussion becomes a very complex discussion of what would you like to do? Here are the complexities of the therapy. Here's how often you have to take it. Here are the things you have to watch out for. What do you and your family feel most comfortable doing? Even that discussion now has become much more complex, which is why this idea of having early referral engagement of the primary care clinician as you have these multidisciplinary teams is now the standard of care because these diseases can be managed effectively. Uh, and it is a much more complex approach now to try to mitigate risk to the patient over time. Thank you. So that, I think, is our last question to the Sjogren's ILD. Yes, Sjogren's is also associated with ILD, and sometimes you can get fibrosis. So I am going, so basically, I'd like to, first of all, thank you. We're just about out of time. Thanks to the panel for an absolutely wonderful discussion. Um, to the audience, uh, please don't forget to visit uh, the CME Outfitters uh, virtual hub, where you can get free resources, including a whiteboard animation, and to receive credit for today's activity, uh, please complete the post-test post evaluation, click on credit tab. And once again, thank you to my colleagues. Thank you to our audience uh, for participating and have a great evening. Thank you.